But if we just had a sheet of music and just played a happy note, so like one high note all the time, like the song wouldn't even sound good. It would just sound like one long continuous tone. But when you collectively put these music together where there's high notes, there's low notes, there's everything in between, that's what makes beautiful music. And so I think about our life in that same way, because one, it takes the pressure off of us because if we're not playing a high note, we recognize it's part of it, right? But also it allows us to see things from a bigger picture instead of just sort of putting the microscope on like one moment and putting all of all of the pressure there. It gives us this perspective. Um, and, and that's kind of how life is. And so a lot of my work is really around that too. It's talking about what happiness is, what it isn't, and giving ourselves permission to not be happy all the time. Welcome to the Find Your Strong podcast. I'm Jennifer Van Barneveld Pay, president of Strong Fitness Magazine, founder of Team Strong Girls, and fitness coach turned fitness publisher. Each week, I'm going to give you a thought or an interview of how to build stronger bodies, stronger minds, and stronger relationships. Getting to where I am now has been nothing short of a journey of the ultimate highs and the deepest of lows. I've had my fair share of setbacks, near bankruptcy, an eating disorder, and multiple miscarriages. You name it, I lost my way time and time again. But through it all, I uncovered my purpose, which gave me the perseverance to find my strong and stay the course. I've spent more than 15 years coaching women, and I know that fitness is a vessel to help you feel strong, confident, and empowered in your body and your life. If you're looking for inspiration and motivation, you've come to the right place. You are not going to want to miss this. Hello, and welcome back to the show. On today's episode, I have Dr. Jillian Mandich, and I'm so excited about it. I just actually finished recording the podcast with her. I usually do these intros after because I like to see where our conversation goes. And she is such an amazing human being. Dr. Jillian is, um, she has a PhD in health science and she is a happiness researcher and speaker. Like how incredibly awesome is that? Who doesn't want to be more happy? So we get into how to create more happiness in your day. And we talked about like how creating little, little bites of happiness throughout your days are, are, actually better for overall happiness than like huge events in your life. So I thought that was really cool. Um, and I mean, she just instantly lights up a room. I mean, you're not going to see her, but you're going to hear her voice. I met her through, uh, the Archangel community. Um, that is where Vince and I go for personal group personal growth and business growth through Giovanni and Dr. Stephanie Estima. And uh, yeah, and Jillian's part of this community and that's how we connected. And I'm just so thankful that she took time out for me to be on the podcast because she is a busy, busy lady. lady. You'll find her on Breakfast Television, The Social, um, Global News Toronto. And I'm so honored she took time out of her day to chat with me. So I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you do, please screenshot, share it, tag Jillian, let her know what you loved about this podcast. And I would really appreciate it too. Enjoy guys. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jillian. I am so excited to chat with you today. I am so happy to be here. I I love every conversation we have. So I'm so excited for for this one today. Yeah, we've met (laughs) a few times now uh, through Archangel, through Giovanni and Dr. Stephanie Estima. And 
I just have to tell you, I was instantly drawn to you. You can like, seriously, just light up a room with your energy and your smile. And then when you told me that you're a happiness researcher, (laughs) I like had to know more. And I know that you hear this a lot, but who doesn't want to be happy and learn more ways to be happy? Exactly. It's so funny because your, your response is the one I get so often when you, when I tell somebody I'm a happiness researcher and then, you know, like if there was a thought bubble, they'd be thinking like, is that a real thing? Right. But it's like, why can't we take scientific principles and apply them to learning to be happy when we can do it to so many other areas of our life. And so it's not common. Um, I think the field in and of itself from a scientific perspective is fairly new. Um, It's a huge booming field now. And I think especially the pandemic has almost like amplified the need for us to have these conversations and to talk about mental health and to talk about our happiness and to talk about when we're not happy. And so um, I am so excited to talk to you all about that today, because I think this is something that is now needing to be, it's essential to be at the forefront of our conversations, because it really does impact every single area of our life. I could not agree more. Um, And we're going to dive deep into that through our conversation today. I want to know how this all started for you. Like, did you you didn't go to university to become a happy researcher. Like it must have evolved over time. When, how did this all happen? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I often think like, you know, when you're in high school and you sit down with your guidance counselor and you're like, okay, like, what do you want to study in university? What credits do you need? What do you want to do? It wasn't like, I was like, oh, I want to study happiness. To be honest, I didn't even know that that was a thing. Um, in high school, I was always really good at math and science. And so the sort of traditional path when you're good at those things is to be a doctor, a medical doctor. And so that was my goal. I did an undergraduate degree at Western in health science, and my plan was to go to medical school. And once I got in, I, I was feeling like I wanted some like real world work experience before I went back to medical school. I wanted, I came right out of high school and I just wanted some like life experience. And so I deferred for a year and I ended up, I'm going to date myself now, but do you remember Workopolis where you yep. used to like apply for jobs? So <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I went on there and I, I applied for every job in London, Ontario, where I was from that had the word health in the title. I, I ended up getting a job at the Middlesex London Health Unit working in public health. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. I was in the research department. I was working as a research assistant. So I was working for um, different professors that were at the university, but then also were working at the health unit. And we were doing a lot of sort of more population-based uh, health promotion work. And I loved it. And uh, we did a lot of work with um, kids and families. And I thought, you know, instead of going to medical school, I love research. Like I love, I'm very curious. I love asking questions. And so I thought, you know, I think what would be a better fit for me would be to do research. So instead of doing a medical degree, I went and did a master's degree at Western in health science. And then my area of specialization was child and youth health. I've always had this passion for kids because, you know, children are our future. And when we can help raise kids and set kids up for success in their adulthood by teaching them healthy habits in childhood, they're way more likely to continue them into adulthood. And so Mm -hmm. I actually ended up doing a lot of childhood obesity research. That was my specialization. And after my master's degree, I went right into my PhD. Uh, Again, I was still studying childhood obesity and I was looking at parent and family focused interventions. So more comprehensive um, interventions. And then in my second year, I sort of had one of those like self-reflection moments. And the thing about obesity research is that in order to qualify for a study, a child has to have a BMI, so a body mass index above the 85th percentile for their age and gender. So it's strictly based on their height and their weight. Mm -hmm. And I know that you would completely agree with me that the number on a scale doesn't necessarily indicate health. 
And so I started thinking about and exploring in the literature, well, what else matters? If I'm not focused on weight, what else can I focus on with my goal being health promotion? Because that was my area of focus. And uh, I was at Pilates one day where like all good things happen, right? (laughs) (laughs) All the good thoughts coming All the good thoughts of Pilates. (laughs) And I was um, on a reformer and my Pilates teacher had two of them. And so the woman next to me was a professor at Ivy at the business school at Western. And she was saying, well, maybe you should go to the business school, Jillian. You're like, you're really entrepreneurial. We have health focus there. And then she made this like off comment. And she said, maybe you should check out my sister's work. She's at Acadia, which is in sort of Eastern Canada. Um, she studies sustainable happiness. And I thought, well, what's that? So I went home that night and I went on, on to Western libraries and I started looking at different happiness research. And sustainable happiness was more an environmental perspective of happiness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and At the same time, that was the first time in my life that the thought crossed my mind that you could study happiness. And so I started looking at all the different areas. And when I got into it from a health lens, when you look at the research and you compare happy people to unhappy people, happy people live longer. They have lower rates of cardiovascular disease. They heal faster from injury. They tend to make better nutritional choices. They tend to sleep better. Like there were so many health benefits to focusing on happiness. And I thought, you know, what I also love about this is one, it's more inclusive, right? Because every single person, regardless of the number on a scale that we see when we step on it, it's, it's universal. And it also, from a health promotion perspective, had a much more positive view. And even when we look at behavior change, right? It's like one thing when there's education where you say, you need to exercise X amount of times a day. You need to eat these things. This is healthy food. That's great. But when you get it sort of a deeper level of that feeling, how do you feel? How do you want to feel? You're more likely to change your behavior long-term when you come at it from that perspective. So halfway through my PhD, I completely switched topics. It actually added a year onto my studies because basically I had to start at the beginning again with a totally different topic. And I started studying happiness and it's just been the happiest thing that I've ever done. Because I think <laughs> from, a, from a personal perspective, like, I mean, honestly, that's sort of the research side, but even for me, when I was learning about happiness, I was doing some of that reflection. When you actually have to like look at yourself and ask those tough questions, like, Hey, Jillian, are you as happy as you think you could be? Mm -hmm. And when the answer is no, and you're a researcher, then the question becomes, okay, well, let me figure out how to do that. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to, from a personal perspective, I didn't like when I felt anxious or sad or down or any of those things. And originally I was, I was naive when I thought I want to get rid of all those emotions, right? I don't want to feel those challenging things. I just want to be happy. And so, Hey, guess what? I'm a researcher. So let's figure that out. Um, I've learned since then that the goal is not to be happy all the time. Um, But I really, I wish I would have measured my happiness when I first started studying happiness, because I would say I've always been uh, a positive person and everything that I read, everything that I research, everything that I do in, in my studies, I try on myself too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really been this really cool journey of learning how to take scientific principles, apply them to something and learn to use that to make meaningful change in, in my life and how I experience life and what I do. I love that. I love how you said like, you know, you went in there a little bit naive because you know, when I even think about what you do, I'm like, I want to, I want to be happy all the time. Like, that's what you instantly think. But, you know, I think it's interesting that, and maybe you can um, speak to this more, but there's different spectrums of human emotion, right? So 
do you in your research now, is it to like almost expect yourself that you're going to have like some down times or maybe some anxious times and then maybe the happy times are are better? Like, how do you actually, do you work with anybody one-on-one with, with these emotions or, or do you just more educate? Yes. I don't work one-on-one at all. Um, it's, it's, it's completely a time situation. Um, and (laughs) I get that (laughs) at the same time, what's really cool about happiness is, so if you look at like our sort of, if it's like a pie chart, there's a big piece of that pie that's genetic in terms of our happiness. If it's like a whole happiness pie, so we can thank our parents or not, but that does have an influence on our happiness. The other big player is environment. And I think that that's really real the past year and whatever it's been since the pandemic started, where we understand that, wow, our environment does impact how we feel. Mm-hmm. And then there's a real, a third piece of the pie that is the other sort of significant part. And that piece is what my work focuses on because that's the piece of happiness that is amenable to change. So mm-hmm. that's our thoughts, our actions, and our behaviors, because I mean, we can't change our genetics. Like maybe we can change gene expression, but like, that's really hard. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we can change environment, you know, this, um, but it's again, very difficult as you know. Um, but when we think about what's inside of us and how we behave every day, our thoughts, our actions, and our behaviors, that's something that is realistic for all of us to focus on. And what we do know from the research is that, yes, we sort of have this baseline level of happiness, but just like if you want to get big and strong, you go to the gym, right? And you exercise and you build your muscles over time. Mm -hmm. And part of happiness is that same thing. It's a muscle that you build over time. And the more that you focus on your thoughts, your actions, and your behaviors, and the more that you do things that make you happy or that do less of what doesn't make you happy, you essentially can build that happiness muscle. And what we know from the research is that not only is it possible to increase our happiness short-term, right? We get a boost, something happens to us, but we can actually elevate it and sustain it at a higher level. And it keeps growing. It's just like a muscle. It's something like that. And so I think that a lot of my work around happiness is focusing on that piece, the action piece, but also around really starting to reevaluate what we think about happiness, because it's, it's kind of one of these weird things where like, we were never taught how to be happy in school, right? We learned math, we learned science, geography, but nobody told us how to be happy. And so a lot of what we know about happiness comes from things that we've learned in life. And a lot of that comes from marketing and media and advertising and what we're told certain things make us happy. And so the other piece of my work really focuses on figuring out what is true happiness. What are things, myths of happiness that we may have been sort of either taught by osmosis where we didn't really realize it or different cultural things. And how do we rewrite that narrative or start to look at happiness from a different perspective where we actually see it for what it really is. I love that. I'm going to ask you, I think a personal question. (laughs) What are the beliefs that you had to overcome to maybe become the person and the businesswoman that you are today? I feel like, yeah, (laughs) I feel like a lot of people, like, like you said, it's like your environment, your surroundings, like your genetics, like who you grew up with. Um, and, and maybe a lot of people do have to overcome a lot of like their belief system that maybe their parents had. Right. Or is there anything that you had to overcome to get to where you are right now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and especially when you're somebody that studies happiness, it's at the forefront of your mind from a work perspective and also from a personal perspective, right? The lines are kind of blurry. And so as I started getting into the literature, 
it, it sort of naturally forces you to put the magnifying glass on yourself as well. Um, so a couple of things I learned was that one, the goal is not to be happy all the time. Like I really, mm-hmm. I naturally have that like perfectionist tendency where I want to do everything perfect. I want to make sure I, you know, when I was in school, I always did all my homework, like all of that. And so I thought that I wanted to be happy all the time. And there's actually literature, they sometimes call it like the dark side of happiness, where Mm -hmm. we find that people that sort of put their blinders on and like single-mindedly or like narrow-mindedly focus on being happy all the time, those people are actually less happy. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like a weird thing at first, but if you actually unpack it a little bit, you think about it and you're like, well, it's impossible to be happy all the time. So if your goal is to be happy all the time, you're never going to reach your goal. And so then what happens when you don't reach goals, you feel down on yourself. It affects your self-confidence. It may affect your self-esteem. You may be thinking you're doing things wrong or you're not doing enough or you're not working hard enough or whatever story we create around that. But it's like, we're chasing a mirage. And so part of my, my, the beginning of my journey was accepting that, like understanding that, and then taking the pressure off of myself, you know, giving myself grace because Once you understand that you can't be happy all the time, what that does is when you're having those days when you aren't happy, instead of feeling like I should be feeling happy, you allow yourself to feel whatever it is that you're going through. And it's kind of like one of those harsh truths of life that life is difficult sometimes. And we have hard things that we have to do. And we go through terrible and tragic and heartbreaking things. And at the same time, that's part of life. And so instead of trying to force ourselves into this box where everything is happy and wonderful all the time, when we can open up to the full expression of the human experience, that's when you actually live, right? Because it's like, if you don't have low moments or challenging moments, you don't appreciate the highs as much. Like think about the pandemic when things started opening up from the lockdown, what were we seeing people posting on Instagram and Facebook? Like, I'm so happy to go for a walk with my friends. I'm so happy to have lunch outside these things that we took for granted, it took us having that taken away to really allow us to appreciate those things. And it's, it's, so it's, it's kind of like this weird thing where I had to understand that it's okay to not, it's, it's more than okay to not be happy all the time, because a lot of times growth comes from the challenging times, the times when we don't know what the next step is. We don't know how to move forward. We are in pain. We're uncertain. Things are unclear. We've lost a job. We've lost a partner. We've had a health crisis, whatever it is, these things, they force us to show ourselves our capacity. And in and of itself, the meaning and the purpose that we find in those things also actually does contribute to, to our happiness. Cause there's kind of two pieces to happiness. There's sort of the hedonic piece of happiness. That's the like chocolate cake, glass of wine, uh, (laughs) night out, like that in the moment we feel good, right? And then there's this other piece of happiness, which is called the eudaimonic happiness. And that's sort of a, I'm using the word deeper, but that's not really like sort of, it's not in terms of like depth, but it's more in terms of like more meaning or more sort of satisfaction, purpose, goals in life. Why am I here? What am I doing? Why is it that I do what I do? And when we focus on that, we actually get happiness from both of those things. It's a little bit different, but again, at the same time, they are very much complementary. And when we can accept that we have this sort of like, like I think about it like this, like if you look at a sheet of music, right. And there's high notes and there's low notes and there's like spaces in between the notes. And like the spaces I think are a key piece because it's not just like gaps in terms of things that matter, right. Like we need space, we need time, we need quiet. Mm -hmm. But if we just 
had a sheet of music and just played a happy note. So like one high note all the time, like the song wouldn't even sound good. It would just sound like one long continuous tone. But when you collectively put these music together where there's high notes, there's low notes, there's everything in between, that's what makes beautiful music. And so I think about our life in that same way, because one, it takes the pressure off of us because if we're not playing a high note, we recognize it's part of it, right? But also it allows us to see things from a bigger picture instead of just sort of putting the microscope on like one moment and putting all of all of the pressure there. It gives us this perspective. Um, and, and that's kind of how life is. And so a lot of my work is really around that too. It's talking about what happiness is, what it isn't, and giving ourselves permission to not be happy all the time. I love that. I love that. Cause you know, I, I think that's so true. Like there's, you know, perfectionist to perfectionist, you, you want to, you, you feel like as though you have to be happy. And then if you're not, you're like, why, 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 why? And then you're putting that extra pressure on yourself. And I loved how you said, and like, you can be happy and you can have the, the days like not, but, but, and yeah, like yeah. It's, it's all part of life. And with um with the pandemic um I I think I I watched one of your IG videos but you were just saying that people are really valuing you know the human connection and experience more than actual things now and it was so neat because I just had I had my birthday in August and typically you know Vince would be like what do you want to what do you want for your birthday we would go out shopping I would you know pick out a wallet or a purse or something like that I was like, you know what? I sort of said yes. And then I was like, I thought about it. I'm like, that's not really going to do anything for me. I just want to have like a nice dinner with friends and have that connection. And I feel like you're so right. Like people are realizing just how, like how much they valued that, or maybe they didn't value it until now after the pandemic. Hey, I just wanted to take a little one minute pause and share with you that this episode is brought to you by my sponsors, Pure Vita Labs, makers of my very favorite protein powder. Go to pvl.com to get 20% off your purchase using my code STRONGGIRLS20, all one word, all caps. That's pvl.com and discount code STRONGGIRLS20. Can you speak more on, on that? Like, are you seeing a trend there where people are just valuing more just time with each other and more experience over actually actual physical things to buy? I love this um, because, you know, it's one thing when you, when you read research, right. But I think the other piece of it is that we're humans having a human experience. And so a lot of times, some of those like intuitive things that happen to us as a researcher, I'll go look and I'll see that it was validated in the research, but I didn't know it ahead of time. And I think as humans, we're social creatures and, and we crave that connection to other people. And so, you know, we do know from, there's actually a, the longest running study, um, it's called the Harvard Study of Adult Development, where they followed um, participants from when they were in university and now they're in their 80s and 90s. And so with longitudinal data, it's actually better in terms of being able to extrapolate results because it's over time. It's not just like one snapshot. Mm -hmm. And what that study has found, and there's an, if you're a TED Talk person listening, there's a great one, um, the lead PI on it, his name is Robert Waldinger, and it's a TED Talk. And he talks about, and one of the key findings from the study is that the number one predictor of both our long-term health and our happiness is social connection. Mm. So above how much money we make above our gender, above our race, above where we live, above our occupation, above if we're married or not, if we have kids or not, the number one predictor 
is social connection. Do we have a couple friends? And by that, it's it's more than just like the, hey, how are you friends? I'm fine. It's if you're having a bad day, you could call them and cry. And if they're having a bad day, they could call you just as, e- just as easily as if you're having an amazing day, they would celebrate you or vice versa. But it's having sort of that more deeper connection with at least one to two people. Mm-hmm. And what I, from a research perspective, what I've been observing, which is exactly what you just said, is that especially as things have been opening up after the lockdown in this pandemic, we want to spend time with people. And we know from the research that, you know, people always ask me like, how do you buy happiness? And the reality is you can't like material things might give you a boost for the moment. But if we look at how we can spend our money to actually maximize our happiness, it's by buying experiences or things that we can do together with people because we're social creatures. And I think that especially when a, we've been more physically distant and isolated from people. And also when we look at our to-do list, spending time with friends is often something that can drop off when we have deadlines and we have work things to do and we have all of that. And yet it's so essential that, you know, in my opinion, it should be at the top of the list, making sure that we always, that's not the thing that doesn't get done. But yet I think when we get busy and we get into the go, 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 and we get into our day and there's kids and there's laundry and there's soccer and there's whatever my puppies going to the will not potty train in my case, whatever it is, there's life. Right. And so certain things can drop off. And yet it's so important to remind ourselves of the fact that this is actually grounded in data and research and that it's, it's so important for us in terms of every part of our life. Cause the other thing about happiness that I think is so cool is that when you teach about nutrition or a physical activity, like it, it's a skill that you learn in a specific domain, Right. And when you think about happiness, when we look at the research I talked about from a physical health perspective earlier, but also when we look in the workplace, we look in happy people, when you compare them to unhappy people, they're more productive at work. They're better problem solvers. They tend to be bet- rated as better well-liked among their peers and get better job evaluations by their supervisors and managers. Um, they're more altruistic. They're more likely to volunteer both their time and their money. They are more um, likely to have longer and more fulfilling marriages. So there's so many facets of our life that actually improve when we build our happiness muscle. And so I think it's such a cool thing that impacts so many areas of our life when we focus on one thing. And it's even better that that one thing actually feels good too. Yeah, I I could not agree more. I've, I've actually like scheduled in time with my friends now and I don't, I don't break the mm-hmm. I don't break it. And same with my husband too. Like we do like, we do a date day every other week. Um, right now it's a little hectic because we have a two-year-old, but I mean, it would, it would have normally been every week. And then even like dates with our kids too. Like, so they're not always wanting toys, you know, and we've really, we've tried to do that over the last couple of months and everybody's just happier when they experience something cool together. Right. Yeah. What are some like I don't know if there's any quick ways, but what are, what are some ways that someone can boost their happiness in their day? Mm. Okay. So I'm going to answer that, but first I'm just going to give a little context Yeah, because I think um, with happiness, we often think about like the big shiny moments in our life, right? We think about the birthdays, the graduations, and those events tend to take up more mental real estate. But when we actually map it out, they don't impact our happiness as much as we think they do. Hmm. So one of the, like, we often think, you know, that my birthday is going to make me happy and we think about it, but really it's one day. So when we look at actually creating a happy life, the goal is to look for small bursts of joy throughout the day. Because think about it, you have one birthday in 365 days. So what's that? Even if it was 24 hours, (laughs) if you look at the other 364 days, 
and have five minutes here, five minutes here, a burst here, a burst there, and you add that up for the year, that's way, way more than 24 hours. So first it's about shifting to ask the question, where in my life can I create small bursts of joy throughout the day? That's the biggest shift because that actually adds up to a happier life. And it also allows us to find things every single day and that builds momentum and that helps to keep us sort of at, um, gives us boosts, right? It's like, if you're having a bad day and then you get boost and it's like, okay. And then you're having something difficult challenge, but you get those boosts. So a couple of things, I mean, I obviously have to start with you with exercise. This is a big one. Uh, and it's big for two, well, many reasons, but two key reasons. One is we release endorphins, right? Those are our feel good hormones. And from a physiological perspective, we actually do feel better. That's, that's true. And we see research people on days that people exercise, their mood is elevated on days that they don't, it's not. And it doesn't even need to be like a 60 minute high intensity workout. It's cumulative. So even if it's, you know, going out for a 15 minute walk in the morning and then, uh, you know, a half an hour walk at night or whatever, it adds up and research has shown that even 10 minutes of movement can have mood boosting effects for six to 12 hours. So the other piece of it that's cool is that it's, you feel good, maybe not during, but right after yeah, uh, you do yeah. it, but it, the, the sort of the residue of that lasts a lot longer. And then the other side of it too, is that when we exercise and we start to feel good about our body and we feel strong in our body and we feel confident that impacts how we feel as well, our self-esteem, how we show up in the world. So we tend to be more, um, be happier in, in who we are and how we're showing up in the world and how we feel and how we look. So there's, there's so many benefits to that. I mean, another big one, and I think this is one where it's actually really cool because when I was like, I've been doing, I do a lot of public speaking before COVID now it's all webinars, but before COVID, um, when I first, maybe like five years ago was talking and I would ask people about gratitude and I would say, who here has a gratitude practice? And you'd maybe see like 10% of the hands go up. And now we're seeing like, it's, it's very common. Um, and gratitude, what I love about it is that it basically is just taking time every single day to think about things that you're thankful for, or that you appreciate. And I love it because it doesn't take a lot of time, like a couple minutes, it can be done anywhere. It doesn't cost anything. Um, so I love it for that. And when you look gratitude and happiness are highly correlated. Um, but the, I think the piece of the conversation that is more because people are used to practicing gratitude now, or it's more familiar is how do you get the most out of your gratitude practice? Mm. And so a couple of things are one, um, we're creatures of habits as humans, right? We, we tend to always do what we do. We like routine, we like structure. And so asking different questions. So if every day you think of who am I grateful for, then mixing it up and saying, you know, what did I learn this week that I'm grateful for? What experiences did I have? So asking different questions about different things that you're grateful for. And then in like a good, better, best situation, it's, it's really good to think about what you're grateful for. But if you want to get the most out of it, you write it down. That's best case scenario. And that can be with you, like actually taking like a pen to paper and writing it down, but it can also be like using notes on your phone. Um, there's great gratitude apps, uh, things like that. But I think the gratitude is something that it's not like one day you wake up and then all of a sudden you're grateful. Yeah. At the same time, it's that slow change that over time, it's like, like a fitness journey or a weight loss transformation, right? Things like that, where it, it takes time. Um, but it's something that is really, really, um, we look, we know from the research, it's one of, it's really impactful in terms of our happiness. I love that. I love that. I, I would want to get like, personally, I think I need to improve on my gratitude. What I normally do is if I'm having a really stressful day or stressful moment, 
I'll sort of stop myself and then list what I'm grateful for, but I don't want to just do it at those points, you know, carving out time in the morning or at night and uh, big believer with, with exercise too. And and (laughs) I work with a lot of, a lot of women who sometimes don't like to exercise, you know, they're, they're straight up and they say, you know, I don't really love to exercise. And that's where I'm asking them, okay, well, next time you exercise, ask yourself, like, it's almost like checking in with yourself afterwards. How do I feel? Because, you know, sometimes when you're just going through the motions and you're not realizing how you feel after something, like how you feel after you eat something, how you feel after you exercise. And then maybe when you don't exercise, how do you feel? How do you feel? So it's it's just asking yourself those questions, right? Oh, I love that because awareness is the first step to any behavior change, right? Like you can't change what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And with happiness, it, it's so fascinating. I had this like interesting thing happen. This was before COVID when we could still do research with people in person. And uh, I would do a lot of like focus groups um, with participants. And I would ask them, are you as happy as you think you possibly could be? And I've never had someone say yes to me. Like every single person is always in, you know what? Like I could be happier, right? Um, and then the second question I would ask is, I would say, okay, well, what makes you happy? And then one of two things would happen. It happens so often that, you know, when you see a pattern and you're trying to like figure out like what's going on with this pattern. So either without even like starting their exhale, they would have an answer. My mom, my dog, my cat, my sister, my brother, like they didn't even like take a breath or a beat. Their answer was like a reflex or there'd be like a really long pause and they'd really have to think about it. And I I thought like, why does this keep happening? And then I thought about it. I'm like, well, if we're not as happy as we think we possibly could be, but either, but we don't know what makes us happy because either we had to think about it for a really long time, or it was something that was so automatic that the answer wasn't contemplative. It was reflexive. And so I thought, well, that makes sense. And I think with happiness, a lot of times when I ask people what makes them happy, it's a hard question to answer in and of itself. And The other thing is when we start to evaluate the things that we make us happy, what we know from research is that oftentimes the things that we think make us happy don't make us A, as happy as we think they would be, or B, for as long as we think, right? It's like we, you know, if you're a student and you're trying to apply to a university or you are applying for a job or you're getting married or you're buying a car or a house or a purse or whatever, those things don't bring us as much happiness or for as long as we think they do. And so I think it's kind of part of this whole conversation is that awareness piece is asking ourselves, okay, well, what truly makes me happy and not just happy in the moment, but also, you know, a little bit later, right. We think about the day after we have a nice dinner with our friends the next morning, we're still happy about it. You know, the dinner ended and we slept, but we still are happy about it. So part of the first step in terms of figuring out how do I be happier is really asking ourselves that question. What are the things that truly make me happy? And they change throughout our lifespan, right? What makes us happy when we're 16 is different than when we're 30 (laughs) and when we're a hundred. And that's part of the process too, because it's an ongoing evolution and, and change. And that's part of it too. But knowing those things, at least then when we're trying to be happy, if we know the things that make us happy, we can start to point our compass in that direction, right? So we're aiming at a, at a better target. I love that. I love that. I ask my guests this at the end of every podcast, (laughs) but what does the word strong mean to you? Mm. (laughs) I love this. So if you would ask me that question five years ago, I was, I was married. 
I was you know, uh, doing my in school. And to me at that time, like strong meant like pushing through and like grinding it out and like doing everything. And like it, to me, strength meant doing everything I possibly could all the time. And since then, I've really realized that strong doesn't always mean force. And there's such a grace in strength that is an allowing where you work really hard and you show up and you, you do the best that you can. You give yourself compassion. You give yourself grace. And to me now, strong is really tapping into who we are and then finding expressions of that and recognizing that it isn't always like there's so much strength in peace. There is so much strength and stillness. I, I thought you always had to be doing in order to be strong. And I realized that oftentimes it's harder. It's stronger to be able to sit in silence or, or to re-chart things if they're not working and to not force things when they're not going. And so I think for me now, strength is really just being an expression of who we are, but allowing that genuine expression of ourself without masks, without filters, without I mean, fear is there obviously. And it's about sometimes we feel the fear and we do it anyway. And we allow ourselves to show up in the world in the way that we do. And when we do that, to me, that's when we're strong. I love that, Jillian. Thank you so much for coming on today and just sharing all the goodness, all your happiness. Uh, I mean, where, where can everybody find you? Where can, where can people connect with you and find you? I know that you're always on, you're on TV a lot. Like you're, what shows are you, are you on? I'm on lots of shows. Um, a lot of the morning shows in Canada, uh, breakfast television, global, uh, your morning, the social Marilyn Dennis, CP 24, a lot of those. Um, but my, my website is a good hub and it's just my name. So it's easy to find and it's chilling with a G. So it's G I L L I A N M A N D I C H.com. So that's a good place to find all of that stuff. And then my company. So I do a lot of um, private consulting, a lot of work with companies, a lot of online education, things like that. And my company's um, the International Happiness Institute of Health Science Research. So it's internationalhappinessinstitute.com. So those are both good places. And on all the social medias, I'm my name, Jillian Mandich. Amazing, Jillian. Thank you so much again for coming on and taking time out of your busy schedule. I really appreciate it. And we will chat soon. And that's a wrap on another episode. Guys, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I just love being able to share these strong stories and thoughts with you. And I hope you were able to take away a piece of inspiration from today. If there's one favor I could ask, please keep sharing, post a screenshot, share a direct link with a friend, or post a review and help spread the word so more people can tune in and find their strong. And if you ever wanted to subscribe to our Strong Fitness Magazine and get the physical copy mailed to your doorstep for more inspiration and motivation, I will include the link in the show notes and please feel free to use my Strong Girl 3 discount code to save. Guys, I cannot wait for the next show. I'm Jennifer Van Barnabelle Pay. Take care and stay strong.